Hello, and welcome to the Hope Reformed Baptist Church of Long Island's podcast. In this episode, we continue our series in the Epistle to the Hebrews. The sermon was preached by Pastor Richard Jensen on February 28, 2021, during the morning worship service. The sermon's title is The Two-Edged Sword and discusses Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast to hear future episodes. You can also visit our site, hopereformedli.net, and find us on Facebook and Sermon Audio for more information. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 12, here now, the inspired word of God. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we prepare to look into your word, we pray a very simple prayer, and that is that you'd bless the preaching, and that, Father, that as your word goes forth, that it would accomplish every purpose for which you intend it. And, Father, we would pray that that purpose would be for the conversion of sinners, the edification of the body, the sanctification of the saints, that you would receive glory, and that the name of our Savior would be exalted. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. One of the things that Ginger and I enjoy doing when we travel is if we happen to come across an old bookstore, we always take a little bit of time and spend browsing through old books. And so we've started collecting some. We're not avid collectors. We don't have enough money to really make a full-blown hobby out of it. But we do have uh, some of our favorites. We have one small book published in 1886, it was called the Westminster Question Book, which is an, a very interesting book. Uh, there's, we have one that's very special to me. It's called Steps Heavingward. It was published in 1921, and what makes it so special to me is it was the book that was given to my mother when she was a teenager. One of Ginger's favorites is the Journal of Harriet Newell. And this is a very old and very small. It's very delicate at this point. Uh, Harriet Newell was the the wife of Samuel Newell, uh, who was a a compatriot of Adoniram Judson on his trip to, ultimately, to India. But what makes it so interesting is she was 19 years old when she embarked on this trip, became pregnant, and lost her life, never made it to India. What a fascinating book as it tells her story, and the book also contains the sermon preached, and letters from her husband back to her parents. It's quite something. One of my favorites is the biography of Charles Spurgeon. It was written by Russell Conwell of Conwell Seminary fame, and it was published in 1892, the same year that Spurgeon died. 
And I believe it's a first edition, so that one I'm holding on to. Some other books are still useful, others are not. Some are valuable and others are not. Some books which we thought might be very useful in their day are completely irrelevant for today. Some of them have, shall we say, just outlived their usefulness. I have a perfect example I have on my shelf, the Y2K Survival Guide. (laughs) I'm willing to sell that extremely cheap. (laughs) It's amazing when we think back 20 years, isn't it? There's one book, however, that is different than all the other books. And I have several of those as well. Of course, I'm talking about the Bible. We have one that was given to my father at Christmas by his mother and father in 1924 with that inscription into it. And while Bibles may be old and have some sentimental value, they are essentially no different than the Bibles that we have in our pews today. What sets those Bibles apart from any of the old books on our bookshelves has nothing to do with age or binding, the printing, or anything of that sort. What makes the book different than all the other books is that it is the very revealed Word of God. The text for today says some things about the Word of God that point to its uniqueness. It says that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It doesn't matter what year it was printed in or what language it's been translated into, the word of God is powerful. It is not a dead book by a bunch of dead authors. It is a living book authored by the living God. Let's put these verses in context. Remember, Uh, Chapter 4, this is the conclusion to the writer's assertion uh, that Jesus is superior to Moses. And we've been looking at that premise uh, for one and a half chapters now. And and we have seen him, the, the author, use quotations from the Old Testament quite quite numerously and heavily, if you if you will. Uh, We've seen that Moses was a faithful servant in the house of God and was worthy to be listened to. And then he says, how much more should we listen to Christ, who is the very Son of God? And we have seen the writer severely and sternly warn us to strive to enter God's rest. He has warned of the dangers of apostasy. He has shown us through the Old Testament record the example of unbelieving Israel. We were warned not to fall short of God's rest as they did in the wilderness. And then we saw how he used the Sabbath principle as a symbol of the ultimate rest of God. And we saw how the Sabbath is important principle that remains for us today. And now to conclude his remarks about entering God's rest, he brings us to the word of God. It is the unique character of God's word that makes it binding on our consciences. And that is because this book, this Bible, is the word of God and not the words of men. So before we look into the text, let's just examine some of the reasons why we can put our trust 
and our confidence in the Bible. Well, first, it is not merely human wisdom nor the tradition of men. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 4 and 5, he says this, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And again, a little down further in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, verse 10, he says, For to us God revealed them through this Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by wisdom, but in those taught by spirit, by the spirit combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And Paul talks to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, and this is why he thanking, he's thanking them, thanking God for them, you accepted it not as the words of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. We also see in the scriptures that the scriptures are inspired by God. Familiar verses to us all, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. And that word that's translated inspired here is literally God breathed from the mouth of God. And so we are cautioned then uh, not to accept the words of mere men. In Jeremiah 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. And in Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And this is exactly the same rebuke that Jesus gave to the Pharisees. In Matthew 15, too, he says, why do your disciples, uh, this was what they were accusing him of, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And then Jesus answers and says, and why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And what's the result of that? Jesus says, and thus you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Notice the clear distinctions. God's word, man's word. God's wisdom, man's wisdom. God's tradition, the tradition of men. And so we are commanded not to tamper 
with the word of God. In Deuteronomy 4, chapter, two, chapter 4, verse 2, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandment of the Lord your God, which I command you. So how do we know that this book that we call the Bible is the word of God? Well, there's several ways we know. Firstly, it was passed on by apostolic teaching. And Jesus gave the apostles the authority to speak on his behalf. In John chapter 14, where Jesus was preparing to leave and was preparing the disciples for his absence once he was crucified and ascended into heaven. And in chapter 14, verse 26, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. That's an important verse. They had divine assistance to preach, to teach, and to write the word of God. They had the power of attorney, if you will, from Jesus himself. That's the actual meaning of the word apostle. Matthew 10, verse 40. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. This is a very important point, the apostolic authority that, they, that Jesus gave to them. And Paul makes this clear, too, in Galatians 1, verse 11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That is why the apostle could speak so boldly. You didn't have to wonder what they meant. Here's a story, I don't know if it's true or not, but story of a pastor who was complaining to one of his co-elders. He says, the congregation just doesn't seem to listen to me. I, I preach and they just don't seem to do anything. And his co-elder says, well, you know, it might help if you stopped ending your sermon, but then again, what do I know? <laughs> the apostles did not speak as such. Jesus said to Peter, on behalf of all the apostles, and I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. And Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens uh, with the saints and are of God's, God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. See, this teaching of the apostles was received as the body of truth. And it was called the deposit of truth. And it was entrusted to them. And that was passed on. This is the same. That's why we are confident when we preach the word of God that we are preaching the same message that the apostles preached 2,000 years ago. In 2 Timothy... Paul, speaking to young Pastor Timothy, in verse 13, says this, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me 
and the faith and the love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. That treasure is the truth of God's word. And then again in 1 Timothy he says, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. It was also called the tradition, the tradition of the church, the tradition of of the word of God, the Greek word paradosis, which means to hand over, to give up, or surrender. That's the, what, let me read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition you received from us. Notice, the tradition is the that they speak about is the word of God. Second Peter 2, verse 21, for it would have be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than have known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. This body of knowledge that the apostles received from God was to be delivered to faithful men and passed on from generation to generation. In 2 Timothy 2, and the things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so how is this body of knowledge to be passed on? Paul says again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the, to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Orally and written. In other words, two ways of passing on the same truth. This is not two different types of truth. One tradition and one, one written and one oral. It's the same body of truth, whether they heard it physically from the apostles or in writing by letters. But when they died, these apostles, these people who had the power of attorney for Jesus Christ, when they died, the only way to continue their teaching is through the written word of God. What the apostles wrote is the very word of God. Again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Peter confirms this as well in 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 15, he says, And regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some are things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Notice how Peter just offhandedly affirms what Paul wrote is the Holy Scriptures. And then when these men died, revelation from God ceased. And the canon of the Scripture is complete. And Jude alludes to that in his letter. He says, in verse 3 of his letter, he says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt a necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. There is no continual revelation. 
Commentator F.F. F. Bruce, addressing this issue, says, Therefore, all claims to convey an additional revelation are false claims. Whether these claims are embodied in books which aim at superseding or supplementing the Bible, or take the form of extra-biblical traditions which are promulgated as dogmas by an ecclesiastical authority. The canon is complete. And Jesus himself testified to the authority of the written word. And we see that when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan himself, how did he respond to Satan? It is written. It is written. It is written. And he also testified to their accuracy. In John chapter 5, verse 39, addressing his critics, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that bear witness of me. The doctrine of scripture is a foundational doctrine for the Christian faith. Without it, we would certainly lapse into error. Matthew Henry, another great commentator, says, It is the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, to which nothing can be added, from which nothing may be detracted, in which more or less should be altered. Here let us abide. Here we are safe. If we stir a step further, we are in danger of either being entangled or seduced. That's why one of the solas of the Reformation was sola scriptura, the Bible alone. Let's examine that just for a few minutes before we get into our text. What does sola scriptura mean? It means the Bible alone is the authoritative word of God. It means the Bible alone has the authority to bind your conscience. It means the Bible alone is our source of theology. It means the Bible alone is the judge of our theology. It means the Bible alone setters, settles all matters of faith, all matters pertaining to faith and godliness and life. Let me tell you what sola scriptura does not mean. It does not mean that all extra biblical knowledge is unnecessary. It's, if, you have a, if you want to fix your car, you want to pick up a good car manual. The physical laws, you want to study physics. I don't know why anybody would want to study physics, but have at it. I hated that class in college. Guess that's not why I'm an engineer today. <laughs> but, but these laws are never in contradiction to the biblical principles. Sola Scriptura does not mean that there is no need for textual studies or historical studies. These are, in fact, necessary tools to aid in our understanding of the Scripture. Sola Scriptura does not mean that we despise church tradition or the writing of the church fathers. But all such traditions and writings are subject to the authority of the Word of God. Sola Scriptura does not mean that we can't benefit from creeds and confessions. In fact, we are a church that holds forth. We hold to the 1689 London Baptist Confession. It is very useful. It's a tool to express what the Scripture teaches on certain subjects, but it is always under the authority of the Word of God. 
Sola Scriptura does not mean that we don't use books and writings of pastors and teachers. Could you imagine if we didn't have the, the wisdom of John Calvin and John Owen and some of these great writers? My library is full of books from these men who help give us insight into what the Scripture means. These men were gifts to the church by God, and we would be silly not to benefit from their instruction. So what is the essence, then, of sola scriptura? Well, first, it rests on the inspiration of Scripture. If the Scriptures were not God-breathed, then sola scriptura would be a very misleading doctrine at best. But since the Scriptures come from the mouth of God himself, they are authoritative. In fact, John Calvin in his institute says, the full authority which they ought to possess with the faithful is not recognized unless they are believed to have come from heaven as directly as if God had been heard giving utterance to them. Sola Scriptura is also based on the inerrancy of Scripture. The Bible is error-free. In fact, it is incapable of having any errors. Inerrancy is at the very heart of the doctrine of Sola Scriptura. If the Bible contains error, then it is unreliable and cannot be trusted. Therefore, it could not be the word of God. Therefore, there would be no reason to pay any attention to it. So that's why this doctrine is so crucial. Third, Sola Scriptura, another pillar of it, is the sufficiency of Scripture. You know, the very fact... Name of the doctrine asserts this principle, sola scriptura, the Bible alone. We read before from 2 Timothy 3, I'm going to read it again. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That word that's there, adequate, it's not the best English translation. The best translation is that perfectly equips for every good work. And then Second Peter tells us this. Peter says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Speaking about the scriptures, is through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And then he goes on in verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption, corruption that is in the world by lust. Now all that being said, there's a little bit of a caveat. This doctrine is dependent upon sound interpretation. Poor handling of the scripture renders the truth into it useless to us. And that's why Peter wrote, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, he says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. If you're ever in a discussion with somebody and you have a disagreement over a doctrinal issue, I can tell you this. At least one of you is wrong. 
The Bible is truth, and it means one thing. It may have many different applications, but it has one central meaning, and that's, what, that's why it's so important that we handle the Word of God accurately. Is this doctrine of sola scriptura taught in Scripture? Sometimes you'll hear people say, that's not taught in Scripture. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written, in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one's own, one's against the other. These principles are important for any understanding of the Word of God. Now we come to our text, and and for the next hour and a half we'll go. (laughs) For those of you who are new, I'm kidding. (laughs) What What the apostle who wrote this epistle is saying, as he comes here, the end of the matter of everything that he said in the first four chapters, the end of the matter, the settler of all disputes, is the word of God. To give credence to all of his previous warnings, he comes back to the authority of Scripture. Why should you not harden your heart? Why should you strive to enter God's rest? Why should you observe the Sabbath and delight in it? Because the word of God is living and active and powerful. Its testimony is true and accurate, and it has the authority to bind your conscience. Look at verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. The Bible is unlike all those other books that have ever been written. It is alive because it is the very word of God. It is alive. Stephen, as he was standing before the men who would stone him, says this. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angels who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. And Peter says the same thing in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 23. He says, For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding word of God. So we see it's a living word. And then we see that it's active. Uh, The Greek word that's used there as active is energase. It's from the word we get energy from. The active word of God that brought the worlds into existence. God spoke and they came into existence. His word contains energy. It is powerful. And just as his word created the world, his word recreates man. Man who is dead in his sin is quickened by the living and active word of God. He is brought to life and made a living creature in Christ. His word is energy, energase. It is energy and it is powerful. The Bible is not a dead letter detailing events of a past age which have no relevance. 
It is alive and powerful and must not be ignored. If you ignore the word of God, there are serious consequences. And it is sharper than any two-edged sword, the text goes on to say. You know, in the weaponry of that day, the two-edged sword was one of the most feared because it was, it was just an awesome weapon and, and usually the sharpest. It had a double edge that could cut in either direction that you went. A skilled soldier could do a lot of damage with this weapon. And I believe the context of the double-edged swords is significant in this passage. The word of God cuts in both directions. It is the power of God to salvation to all those who believe. It is the instrument of salvation. It cuts to the very heart of man, but it is also the instrument that cuts through everything and brings the Christian into the kingdom of God. And so how blessed is the man who enters that rest? He's the beneficiary of God's eternal promise. But then there's the other side of the sword. The one who hardens his heart, God swore he will never enter his rest. That's the other side of the sword. The word of God brings judgment upon those who won't obey. Those who do not believe are judged by the very same word of God. The word of God will not return void, says Isaiah. It will accomplish every purpose for which it is sent. And that purpose may be judgment. In John chapter 12, Jesus says in verse 47, And if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world but to save it. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has the one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at that last day. And, and we see that the sword, this two-edged sword, cuts deeper than anything else. Look at verse 12 again. Piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We need to be careful not to get too caught up in some of the symbolism here. The point is, the word of God leaves nothing untouched and nothing hidden. The word of God goes where no man can go. Your deepest thoughts, those intentions that no one else knows about, the word of God opens and lays bare. Psalm 139, we read this this morning. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down and art intimately acquainted with all of my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it. Now, the Bible is not a dead book. It is not a book to be taken for granted. It is not a book that needs to be put on a shelf and admired because of the binding. The warnings in it are not just meant for an ancient culture. They are for you and I, our generations and future generations. So what's the word? Don't harden your heart. There is no escaping from the penetrating word of God. And then look at verse 13. 
and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The word of God opens all things, and all things are revealed, all secrets, to the eyes of God. Those things that you think about, and you think nobody else knows what's in your mind, God knows. There is nothing hidden. Psalm 139, 12, Even the darkness is not dark to thee, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to thee. You realize that most crimes are committed at night? Overwhelming majority, by a long shot. Why? Because people think they can hide. Darkness hides. Jeremiah 23, verse 24, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and fill the earth, declares the Lord? And Hebrews says there will be a day of accounting. Everything is open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And there is no, no getting away from God. He is the perfect accountant. One of the examples we see in scripture is that of, a, of an accounting, you know, the books being laid open. God is the perfect accountant. You can't keep a second set of books that he doesn't know about. Everything is open and laid bare and is exposed before him. In Revelation chapter 6, And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? God sees it all. You know, Ginger and I enjoy browsing some of these old bookstores, collecting. We find something that's a little bit unique, and, and we will buy it. But, and if you've ever been in my study, you know I, I enjoy collecting books, and maybe too much so. But of all the authors on that, my old bookshelf, to where I keep the old books, those authors all have one thing in common. They're all dead. But the Bible is unique. Its author is the one, the true, the living God. The Bible is not an old, outdated book written by someone who is dead. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The author is the living God himself. And so the writer to the Hebrews says that all of his prior teaching is true because the word of God is true. It is living and it is active. It's not an old book relegated to a prior age. It's the word of the living God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the principles that guided the Israelites are the same as those today. And so our conclusion this morning is basically the same as it has been for the last several weeks. Strive to enter God's rest. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
make your calling and election sure. Why? Because the word of God says so, and it is the true, living, and active word of God. You can trust your eternal soul to the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, once again, we want to thank you for the gift you've given to us of the scriptures. We thank you, Father, that in them are the very words of life. All we ever need to know about life and godliness is contained in the pages of your holy word. And so, Father, I would pray this morning that all of us, all the members of this church, that we would take the admonition of the writer to the Hebrews, take it to heart, and strive to make sure that we are not falling short, that we would be those who enter your rest. Father, for those who might be here who do not know you, I pray that even this morning, that, Father, that your word has pierced their heart. That, Father, that you have pierced it and opened it and given them a new heart, one of flesh, that they might repent and believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.